Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I'm so happy to have Tyra Grove on the Arthritis Life Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so glad. And can you just let the audience know a little bit about you, like where you live and what is your relationship to arthritis? So I live in Chicago, Illinois, and I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in 2021, but I've had pain ever since I was about like 12. Um, and I recently just got diagnosed with fibromyalgia as well. Oh, yeah. And how old are you now? If you don't mind sharing. I'm 25. Yeah. So that's a long time to mm -hmm. be in pain from when you were 12 to when you got diagnosed. Can you share a little bit? Um, it's always hard to walk down some of these literally painful <laughs> memories, but can you share a little bit about like when you first remember feeling pain and kind of walk us through your diagnosis journey slash saga? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I started off in dance when I was younger. So I started, I started with gymnastics actually when I was about, I think seven. Um, and I kept getting injured and they thought it was because I was too tall. And I, a lot of the people that were in my class were like shorter than me and I would hit a growth spurt and they thought it was because I was too tall and that gymnastic just wasn't good for my body and that maybe I should stop. So I focused on dance. I did both of them at the same time, but then I stopped gymnastics completely and kind of like threw myself into dance and wanted to be a dancer when I got older. And it was the same thing. I kept having injuries. I kept being in pain all the time. And, you know, we kind of wrote it off as it's just the dancer's life or, you know, no pain, no gain. And about when I was like 12, I randomly had a severe amount of pain in both of my knees and I couldn't walk, like I couldn't do anything. 
and it, it seemed like it was out of nowhere. And I had to stay home from school. And I was, I was trying to get around my house and like my mom's office chair and like rolling around. Oh, did you have any systemic symptoms at that time, like fatigue or fevers out of curiosity? No, I think fatigue, but I didn't know that that's what it was. I kind of just, yeah, I, I, I didn't know why these things were happening. I thought, okay, maybe it's because I played outside all day or maybe because I did all this like dance stuff and I kind of just wrote those things off. Mm -hmm. um, and also just because I was a dancer and kind of just the culture in dance is pushed through. And so whenever I felt anything, I would ignore it and push through it. So even if it, there were systemic things happening to me, I think I was kind of just ignoring them until it got to the point where I couldn't ignore them anymore. Yeah, that, that completely makes sense. It's such a familiar story. So many people who get rheumatoid arthritis specifically are like very active, you know, initially. And then when they first experience pain, the most, you know, normal to you explanation of that pain is injury. Like I yeah, kept yeah. saying, I must have sprained my finger. Like somehow I must have just fallen on it and not noticed. And then, you know, because I just was like no thought in my head was anything to do with the systemic like autoimmune condition you know so so but yeah so you had some good support from your family it sounds like kind of like helping you get around the house with the chair or that was me like I was just oh, rolling oh, good. like grabbing things to like push me along <laughs> that's so that was that was me um but my mom is actually a doctor of physical therapy so that has been well, that's amazing that your mom is a doctor of physical therapy. Yeah, she kind of understands how complex the human body is, right? And yeah, so she taught me a lot about pain management and also just like just the anatomy, um, just ways of treating myself. Um, just I know that if my mom wasn't who she was and, and knows what she knows, I don't think I would be able to manage as well as I am able to, and especially whenever I have like extreme flares, I kind of know what to do immediately because of all the stuff she's taught me. And, and it's interesting because even though she does know all of these things and she does know how to treat pain and she does know how to like, you know, strengthen muscles and, and, and all of these other things and medical things, she doesn't, she still doesn't fully understand, you know what I mean? So it's like still that layer of disconnection you know it's like mm -hmm. my pain is like something separate like she understands it in a way but not always yeah and that's common I mean I think I was trained as an occupational therapist and I think both physical therapists and occupational therapists are trained to really be experts in the management and treatment of like acute pain conditions you know like injuries and rehabilitation where you're going to be you're at your baseline, your prior level of function, you get injured, and then your goal is to get back to that prior level, right? But with chronic conditions, that's not the case. And we do get some training in it, but the heart, like the meat and potatoes of our training is in the cases where you're going to get back to that previous level or close to it. So yeah, it's a totally different mindset. Yeah. And in the amount of physical therapists that I've cycled through, because they didn't, understand that and also because some of them were before I got diagnosed so I had this like cyclical thing happen where I was doing good doing good making progress and then all of a sudden 
like my progress was completely halted or there's a period where I just kept having pain. And these therapists that I had either thought I wasn't doing my exercises or I wasn't actually sticking to the program or they just gave up on me and they felt like it was helpless and their time was being wasted, you know, or they got frustrated and overwhelmed with like the amount of things that were happening to me. That's a hard, such a hard place. Cause yeah, it's like, why blame the patient? You know, you're doing the best that you can. I think it's, yeah, it's definitely something a bit toxic. I would say in our field, you know, the whole field of medicine sometimes tends to, you know, um, I would say instead of confronting the fact that maybe sometimes people can do everything right and still have pain. It's like, that's the elephant in the room, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) And a a provider that understands that is like worth the weight in gold because others are like, well, you must be doing something wrong. Or like Dr. House, all patients lie. It's like, no, they don't. (laughs) Right. And it's like the fact that something has to be wrong with you or like your pain is a sign that you're doing something wrong. I feel like it's just so unhealthy just to put on people and for people to feel. Because whenever I had or have setbacks, there's this element of shame that I have to work through every single time. And I feel like people who experience chronic pain, we don't, we don't need to have that. We don't need to have that shame, but it, I don't know. I always get confronted with it all the time. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, this is a weird way to look at it, but I, I this happens a lot in my like room to thrive support programs where there's this double-edged side of thinking that everything's under your control because if it's under your control then that gives you hope that you could do something about it but if it's under your control then that means a flare-up is your fault so yeah so in order but then so then in order to to acknowledge that the flare-up wasn't your fault you have to realize that there are things out of your control and that's really scary for people right so it's hard uh and then there's so many things in physical therapy that I know and I, I hold close to my heart and I and I try to practice every day. And I recently switched to a new physical therapist because the one that I had wasn't helping. And she was kind of doing the work of reminding me of those things. And I remember leaving and feeling so mad at myself because I'm like, why did I let this one thing go? Why didn't I stop doing this? And why haven't I been doing this one thing every day? And it's like, it's okay. Like if you're dealing with all of these different things and, and trying to live life and like deal with pain all the time, it's like, of course, you're going to let some things go sometimes. And like, I don't have to feel shame and guilt because I'm not being the perfect patient or like the perfect pain manager. Like it's just. It, yeah. Self. I mean, what, what I'm hearing you say is like self-compassion, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and you know, the reason people don't do their exercises is because they're human. Like we're not robots, you know, and that's normal. It's normal to be human and and exercises that are, are, you know, given to you that aren't relevant or meaningful to you are much less likely to be done, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I think there's so much, so much complexity to it, but I was going to ask before I forget. So you got treatment for like the pain, but no one really knew the underlying cause was like an autoimmune process. How did you eventually get to that diagnosis in 2021 of rheumatoid arthritis? Mm -hmm. I, okay. So I kept going to so many different doctors, like just so many, so many. Um, and 
I would go through a process of finding a doctor. They would tell me that this thing was wrong with me. It was a wrong diagnosis. Then they would find out, you know, try to do a, a plan of care. It wouldn't work for me. And then a lot of them ended up ghosting me or just like their office wouldn't take my calls. They wouldn't take my calls. They wouldn't write back to me. They wouldn't answer my emails. Um, and so then I would, you know, be left to try to find another person to care for me. And a lot of the things that I got confronted with because I started off with dance and I'm an actress and like, I'm very active. So, and I'm, I was young at the time I was, you know, between, I started searching for a diagnosis between the ages of, I think 17 up until when I got diagnosed. And so I was always confronted with, okay, you're really flexible. You're really strong and you're young. So maybe it's like tendonitis or maybe it's like something simple. Like there's no way it's something bigger happening with you. Like you're healthy. Um, and so, you know, I was just being thrown everywhere, trying to get x-rays, MRIs, and it was just, I, <laughs> so finally, finally, after I got a few like procedures to fix a diagnosis that I didn't even have. Um, I went to this doctor and I remember he came into the room and he looked at my x-rays and he looked at me and I had on my wrist braces because my hands were really flared. I was in a wheelchair and I was, it was, I was at the point where my mom really had to do everything for me. Like physically, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't wash like my own dish. I couldn't really bring my spoon to my mouth. I couldn't, like she would carry me to the bathroom. And when I showered, she like put me on like the shower floor and I would go from there. And like, I couldn't even like wash myself with my hands. So I was, you know, in so much, so much pain. And that's where I was and that's how I, I was functioning. But in front of this doctor, he immediately looked at me as if everything that I was doing was a lie. Um, and she was like, you're young, you don't have arthritis. These MRIs don't show arthritis. If something's wrong with you, maybe it's systemic, but it's not arthritis. I don't know what it is. You're gonna have to like go to Duke or something to find out what is actually wrong with you, but it's no form of arthritis. So I went back and I told my mom this and I was just so insanely confused. Um, so then I, I, my primary care retested me for the RA factor. I think first time I got it, I think it was negative, but when we did it again, it was positive. Um, so then when she, then she referred me to a rheumatologist. Um, and then after, after seeing him twice, the second time, um, he told me that I have RA. And then I started different medications, which was a whole nother journey. That's yeah, it's like the diagnosis journey and then there's the treatment journey. But you know, it is important for people listening who may be not diagnosed yet or in the process of trying to find a diagnosis to know that, you know, only 40% of people are 40 to 70% of people, they say, are positive for rheumatoid factor at their diagnosis. Yes. So you can be negative for it at one point in time. And then as your disease progresses, you, it's like you're more and more likely to be, be positive for it. So it's really a shame how often people are said, told, you know, well, um, you can't have rheumatoid arthritis because your rheumatoid factor is negative. That's totally not right. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. So they look at 
your personal medical history, family medical history, mm -hmm. physical exam of your joints, your subjective report of your symptoms. When is it worse in the morning? Is it worse after activity? Is it the small joints or the big joints? Is it bilateral? Um, and they look at blood work and imaging. All of those things have to be looked at, not just blood work. You know? Exactly. And, then and also, like I said, because my mom taught me how to treat myself. So I do this treatment for myself morning and night. And, and especially when I was in extreme pain, I was doing it around the clock because I, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't livable to not treat my pain all the time. And so whenever doctors would like examine my joints and things, I had already iced so much that my swelling had gone down. So they're immediately like, oh, okay, it's not puffy. So your disease is inactive or it's like these little markers that don't really actually confirm or deny what is going on in my body. We have to test everything before you just rule it out. Yeah, that, yeah, that's so interesting. I know that there's definitely different philosophies about how to like present at your appointment. <laughs> Cause the worst thing is when you go to the appointment and you're like, I'm actually having one of these rare, like good days. And then they're like, oh, well, you're doing, you look fine oh, now. Great. <laughs> Yep. yeah and it's it's such a yeah I mean what what did it feel like to you to finally get that explanation was it like a mixed bag of like relief that there's a name for it but you know it's a serious diagnosis or you know can you walk us through the emotional response a little bit <laughs> it was a very mixed mixed bag of emotions that I still process daily. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, for, first off, because like I said, a lot of things go back to my mom being a physical therapist. So she's had experience with patients with RA and I've seen her patients with RA. Um, and a lot of them have been older and also their disease progressed in a time where medicine wasn't as advanced as it is now. So I was really seeing um, examples of RA that were very scary to me. Um, yeah. And very scary for my mom. And so she, there was like my mom's reaction and, and hearing her reaction and then my own reaction, which is a separate thing. Um, and my family's reaction, which, <laughs> so, so when I found out I was really, ex I was really excited to know what was happening to me. And I was like, now I can actually get a plan of care based off of an actual diagnosis that I have rather than all of the plans of care that I had that were based off of misdi uh, misdiagnosis. So I was really excited about that, but I was really emotionally impacted by the fact that RA doesn't have a cure. You know what I mean? So for the rest of my life, I will have RA in some form. Like it, it can, I can go into remission, but I still do have RA. Um, so for me, it was hard because I was like, I thought there was going to be something wrong that I could just get fixed and then I can go move on with my life. So it was the fact that it wasn't something that was an easy fix. Um, and part of me, especially for how much pain I was in and the such I, there was a small amount of activity that I can do, 
versus as active as I used to be and being a dancer and, and just wanting to just run around all the time, I had to go through the process of mourning the life that I had in my mind for myself. Like I had to factor in the fact that I have RA, you know, and just kind of make a new dream for my life. That's huge. And I, and I think it it's interesting to me how different those diagnosis conversations can be so different depending on the provider. Cause I do re- remember I was the captain of my soccer team division three. So it wasn't like crazy, but like I weighed like 25 more pounds than I do now of muscle. Like I was a lot, ah. more, I was a lot stronger and more active and, um, than I am now, but and the first 10 years after my diagnosis, what my, do- what my doctor said at that initial appointment, the rheumatologist said, mm-hmm. our goal is to get you back to doing all the things you were able to do before. If the, if you respond well to the medicine, she did have that caveat. Like then right now we're in this exciting time period where like you can play soccer, you know, run, swing dance and stuff. So she kind of gave me this hope, mm-hmm. which was founded by, by evidence, but also for, for me, it made me not realize how serious the condition was until I had my first flare. So it's like a mixed bag, but it sounds like in yours, they were kind of like, it might be that maybe yours was more severe because it had gone on for so long without being treated that the diagn- that the prognosis was maybe less like, but did, they, did anyone ever say to you, like, we want you to get back to be able to dance again? Or was it more like, that's not going to be realistic? Well, truthfully, with most doctors that I face, I have to prove to them the amount of pain that I'm in and the amount of pain that I was in. So for me, I really had to just kind of be honest with myself, but it was, it was more of, I would tell people how much pain I'm in and they never, they never believed me. And so it was as if they thought that I could do all that stuff now. Mm, mm. (laughs) Like even later in that same appointment when I got diagnosed and it was around the same time where I was having all the trouble and needed all that help from my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my doctors wrote in my chart that I was a perfectly healthy, high functioning um, 23 year old, which I was 23 at the time. And I was like, did you not listen to a single thing I said? That is egregious. Like as an occupational therapist, like we have all these ways of rating like people's function on on different scales. And like, if you can't bring like a fork to your mouth, like a food that is severe. And they did not believe, they did not believe me. Like I I would say that. And it it was just. Well, we should say for the people who are just listening, like I do, I wonder if race comes into play here. I I think I wonder, I know. (laughs) And, and also to add to this, like I am very independent and a lot of the things I have to do, I have to do alone. So it's like, I'm going to these doctor's appointments and I have to go by myself or I have to do these things by myself. And so even when I'm coming to an appointment and, and because my hands are so bad, I can't roll myself in a wheelchair. So that means I do have to walk in. And Mm -hmm. so by the time I get into, in front of the doctor, it's like, oh my gosh, I've done all these things for the day. And I'm usually very peppy and very like, I don't know, very high spirited, even if I'm really, really not doing well. And I just don't get believed. I just don't get believed. They just don't believe me at all. I'm so sorry. You deserve so much better than what you got. You really. I know that. I know that race is a really big factor. I know it is. I mean, 
I think there are statistics that I'll look them up because I know the American College of Rheumatology, which is like the professional association for rheumatologists, kind of like the American Academy of Pediatrics is for pediatricians, you know, they have started looking, especially in the last three or four years, really making sure they update all their materials to include, like, for example, psoriasis, pictures of people, not just white people, you know, yeah. pictures of, oh, red, tender, swollen joints. Well, if someone who's like as white as a sheet like me, yeah, it might look pink, but on your skin, darker skin, it's not going to look that, you know, it, they need, there needs to be, sorry, I'm, I'm going on my soap, soapbox, but it's not, I mean, it's not mine to say, cause I'm a white woman, but you know, I'm just, I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's true. I know. I get so, I get like talk myself into circles when I think about this, but there needs to be better treatment and better women need to be believed. Black women need to be believed. And, and, and like you're saying, so yes, because I was having a lot of discoloration in my feet and in my hands. Mm -hmm. And so for me, my version of discoloration versus a picture that even when I was like telling my doctor about it, he was like, oh, well, if it doesn't look like this, then you're good. But it's a picture of someone who is white. And I'm like, my skin is never going to look like that. But I'm telling you that the way it looks normally versus the way it is looking now is, is different. And so like, I can tell you that for my body, something is going on here, you know? And like, even when I'm Googling things and comparing, can you hear that? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but yeah, even when I'm Googling things and, and I'm comparing them, I'm comparing them to these pictures of people that don't have the same complexion as me. And so it's not going to look the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, and there needs to be better representation of different, you know, racial groups within the doctor population as well for the, you know, and the therapist, you know, physical therapist, you know, all the different medical, you know, providers. Cause if, if someone had understood that, you know, um, and I, I have, I have had a doctor who was black, um, who was my rheumatologist. And when I started having, um, discoloration happening again, and he looked at it, he was able to really like notice it and say like, this doesn't look right. And it was a completely different response from the other doctors that I was telling about it. Yeah, it's, I mean, think about the time that some of them, if they've been practicing for 20, 30 years, yeah, they really aren't up to speed sometimes with, you know, um, their, their education was not racially sensitive or racially competent. I mean, I don't even know what the right word is, but so I, yeah, the statistics are just really like in general, autoimmune diseases, whether you're male or female are like take three to six years to get diagnosed, but it's way more, if you're female, it's going to take longer. And if you're not white, it's going to take even longer, basically. So you kind of have all these strikes against you and without it, and with no fault of your own, obviously, yes. you know, and I'm just, it's just so unfair, you know? And then it's like, okay, you add on to the factor, like you said, if I'm black and I'm not being believed. And then also too, if we, if we add in the financial element of, I, was facing a lot of financial insecurity. So I'm being forced to work and provide for myself. And so, of course, I am doing all of these things. And, and also when I get to the, the point where I'm in front of a doctor, I know that I have to be my own advocate. So mm -hmm. it's still presenting a, a face of someone who is still 
doing so many things and juggling so many things, but like that doesn't negate how sick I am or how much pain I'm in. You know, it's just like all of these factors that just run together. And also too, like if I'm by myself and I'm being independent and I'm coming in front of a doctor, I don't have another person with me as a witness to speak to how much pain they watched me be in. I was kind of in my apartment with my pain alone struggling. I feel like that's a, that is a thing too. So true. I really think it's like, if it, that it sounds silly, but if a tree falls in a forest, no one hears it kind of thing, you know, like I, I can really relate to that because I'm like very extroverted and I like to share about my life, but I don't feel, I don't, enjoy intrinsically sharing like the worst moments I those are all private you know but it's like but if no one ever sees it if I don't ever talk about it then they don't but that's more about me sharing like you know publicly my stories but in your case it's I I do have the I think I have the privilege of at this stage I've had rheumatoid arthritis now for 20 years but I was diagnosed when I was 21 um and um I am believed you know, in most of my interactions with the providers that have known me. Now, I did go to the ER, and that's a whole other story. Once, but I've only been to the ER once. Our story too. Oh, I was. Yeah, I would love to hear it. I would love to. Oh, it was just. <laughs> I had like a really, really severe heart palpitation, which I never. I occasionally I could hear it. Felt feels like my heart like double skips a beat, you know. But um, and and I said I got very like lightheaded, almost felt like I was gonna faint, and I was like, what is going on? Now I do have a history of like, I have had panic attacks in the past, but this was nothing to do. I wasn't panicking about anything. Like those are my panic attacks are always contextual for like claustrophobia. So like Mm -hmm. I'm in an MRI or something. So yes, I have a history of anxiety disorder, but that to me, it's like, I never in my life have gotten like a, like episode like that out of the blue before. So I ended up going to the ER, of course, you know, within like 10 minutes, they're calling me a hypochondriac. And it was just awful. It was just so it was the, yeah. So it was a bad thing. And it turns out, um, I remembered it later on a couple of days later that I was like, you know what it was, they were ironically, cause I know there's some construction going on at your, at your place. I was working, I was working that day. I was at an elementary school and someone on the floor above, I don't think they were doing construction, but they had dropped something really heavy mm-hmm. and it had made a really loud noise. So I think my explanation looking back was that it's like an exaggerated, have you ever heard of like the startle response? Like, you know how infants do that? Like when they're shocked, I think I, ha- and then their heart rate goes high. Cause it's like a, sh- like my, it's actually like a, like a startle response. I think my body just suddenly like released like a ton of adrenaline that made me like lightheaded and just my heart did skip a beat or have a palpitation, but it was not any, it wasn't a symptom of anything else. Um, but it just, I actually asked him before we left, just cause I was like, you know, I know you're saying that my heart my EKG was good and everything, you know, but given that I have this diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, which comes along with heart issues, I was like, is there anything else I should be looking out for? Like in the next few days, this is all new to me. I've never had any heart thing before. And he's like, you know what? I don't actually want to tell you anything it could else be, because I think you're the kind, he literally said, you're the kind of person that if I tell you, you're going to like, just worry about it so egregious I was like who died and made you my therapist like I already have a therapist who like again like I it was anyway so that was mine but are you gatekeeping information which is like gonna make you I don't know maybe even google things and then that's worse than me being told by you directly what things it could be 
it was so insulting. Like it was really insulting. So I'm like, yeah, you're, I'm trying to be a good self self manager of my condition and you're withholding information because you've decided that nothing is wrong with me other than anxiety, despite me having like other, like I did have a diagnosis at that time of gastroparesis, which is a dysautonomia. So it could have been like a POTS type thing, but it could have been something related to, all right, my rheumatologist was so livid when I told her about that. And that's not, that's nothing compared to some of the stories I see on social media about people who are truly, the worst stories from the ER are people who are truly in distress, who are not believed. I mean, that is a horrible, yeah. What, what was yours? Let's go down memory lane. <laughs> so when I first got diagnosed in 2021, the first thing that I was prescribed, um, I don't, I don't want to say what it is, but the, the first thing that I was prescribed caused me to start having seizures. So I, I took maybe about, I took it for about three days. Um, and I started having before I would have shakes, um, in my body and kind of just like the inability to control my own like extremities and then which that was separate, but so I thought all of it was coming together. So then I, I didn't know what was going on with me. Um, and then I started having seizures and they just kept increasing and kept increasing. And I had maybe about 23 and I was to the point where I, I, I wasn't even here on this planet anymore. Um, and I finally was like being rushed to the hospital and when I was in the waiting room, I started having another one. And then finally, like, because when I was trying to check in and everything, they were just like, okay, you're going to be in the line with these maybe 20 people. And then I started seizing. So then they immediately brought me back. Um, and when I woke up, I remember they gave me some medicine to stop the seizures basically. Cause I kept seizing and I wake up later. I don't know how much time had passed, but then there's like a doctor standing over me and he was just kind of like looking at me <laughs> and I, I started talking to him and kind of telling him what happened and how long they've been happening. And I kept a log of all of them. Um, and my, my ex-boyfriend at the time, a lot of my seizures were happening around him and he would watch me. And so I wasn't conscious of what was happening, but he would tell me after, and then I would log it. Um, and so I told him all of these things, but also in my life, there's like a lot of stress and distress and whatever. And so he started asking me like personal questions. And then he was just like, I think you're just stressed and overwhelmed. And, and also you have this other diagnosis. So I think you have a somatic disorder and and wrote that in my chart, like on my medical records. Straight to jail. I said there's a TikTok. Straight to jail. Straight to jail. No one should be allowed to use that. I'm sorry. Straight to just, jail. That needs to be taken, stricken out. I don't care if it really is a real thing. It doesn't matter because it's so misused. Fully, I I I'm I seized in front of you. And what just fully told me I have a somatic disorder. And then, so like I said, they gave me medication to stop the seizures because without it, I was like seizing, like just repetitively. And then right after they gave me medication to stop the seizures, he gave me a test to try to induce a seizure, but I had just taken the medication to stop me from seizing. And he said, well, there were, there were like a little bit of like activity happening, but not enough to say that you were seizing 
So it must be, he said what he said, seizures of the mind. And then I told my, my doctors who prescribed me the medication about it. And they were like, oh, well, we've never really heard of any of our patients having that problem. So I don't think it's connected to the medication. And then I went to a neurologist and talked to him about it. And then he was like, okay, stop taking the medication. And I mean, if they immediately stop after the medication has cleared your system, which it did, then it was medication. I mean, I feel like every single possible side effect is always listed. You know, it's like constipation, diarrhea, seizures, lack of seizures, like it's everything, you know? So, or you could be the first person and that's okay. I could be the first person. Yeah. That reported it, you know? And, yeah. and also it's not like no one has ever had seizures because of the medication. It's just not common. Oh, that's my least favorite thing. Like it doesn't matter how common something is if you're the person it's happening to. Because when do things get reported if there's not a first person to have it happen to them? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I cannot believe you had a seizure in the ER and they still didn't believe you. I'm sorry. I'm like, what? It was, it was was insane. It was, it was, it was, (laughs) I was like, I understand not believing me with pain that is invisible. You know what I mean? I, I could, I could rationalize that in my head, but to full out seize in front of somebody and then be immediately told that it is a seizure of the mind. Yeah. You have is just, Oh man, I'm so sorry. That's it's, it's, I don't know if you've ever gone over these experiences in therapy, but I was shocked when I went to therapy, I went to therapy for the first time for quote unquote, like postpartum depression. I'm saying that cause that's what I thought it was. I didn't really think it was depression because I wasn't sad. I thought depression meant sadness, but I was like just constantly irritable and just didn't feel like myself. And I was like, okay, I have permission to go to therapy because it's postpartum. And there's all this awareness about postpartum, you know, issues. And I thought I was just going to be talking about transitioning to my role as a mom. And oh my God, within like two sessions, everything came, ended up being all roads lead back to me having to finally process some of the shit I had gone through as a chronic illness patient. And again, and if you, uh, by the time this episode comes out, episode hundred will have come out, which was my diagnosis story. Why I have my parents on the, on the episode. And in terms of looking at it from an intersectional point of view, you know, we had socioeconomic privilege to, to the degree that they made the financial decision. It wasn't like it was an easy decision. It's not like we're like, you know, the CEO of Boeing or something, but they, they, they hired a concierge doctor and that wasn't as common back then. And that was like the doctor that's like, they'll, they'll answer the phone 24 seven. And even she said at first, I think you're just anxious. Like she didn't think anything else was wrong. And then, but then she eventually diagnosed my RA um, when I started having more joint symptoms. But um, all of this is to say um, that, I have gone back in therapy and had, and really revisited a lot of these, you know, the, the trauma of not being believed, even when everything else is going for you. Like, it's just, there's nothing quite like it. You know, I don't, my heart goes out to anyone right now who's experiencing that. If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up. I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks. And it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, 
I created a step-by-step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through, people who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T in capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. It's really tough. Like it's, I think it starts to, for me, it started to, I'm like, well, am I, am I wrong? Is this in my head? Well, maybe my pain is not that bad. Maybe I need to hide it or, or just, mm-hmm. I'm just like, no one's going to believe it or no one wants to talk about it. So then this is private. And, and also with my family, I, they, <laughs> I think sometimes, um, there's this thing that's like, when you speak something, it gives it power. Mm. So uh, for a long time, some of my family members would not say my diagnosis or speak my diagnosis or even, you know, talk about it to me as if I had it. And they would tell me, I'm not claiming that over you. I'm not claiming that that's something that you have because then it would have power over you. And so it, it, it became such a crazy thing in my head of, I just don't even know how to process this anymore. Mm-hmm. It sounds <laughs> like kind of the old fashioned, like able, almost like subtle ableist way of looking at things like, well, you'll just, you know, I have already, but it doesn't have me or I'm going to conquer right. it. And yeah. is that what, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or like even the, the outlook on medication being, you know, you don't want to take that because then you're going to be addicted to it and you don't want to live by that. So like, don't do it. And, and it's all the the pressures from people. And, and because I needed help and financially, I needed help and I needed support. And of course that goes to my family and trying to get that support from them. 
And so it's like, they have all these ideas about the way that I should be treated and, and also, you know, not claiming that I have this disease. So not staying on this medication and not thinking that this medication is going to be a forever thing. And it just became a whole heap of things that I needed to, to work through too. And, and like you said, just like kind of looking at healing from a more like intersectional point of view, like it, it caused me to work through that as well and, and how my family dynamics ties into the journey that I had to go through and being able to stand on my own with even being able to like claim my diagnosis. You know, it was like, it was kind of like I was standing on an island, like saying, I have rheumatoid arthritis and that's okay. And for some reason, I'm the only person who thinks that that's okay. Well, because yeah, it's so, the way I see it is it's like, if you think that having RA makes you less than, like less worthy, less less capable, then you're going to be afraid of it and be like, oh no, like you're just, you just need to rise over it or conquer it or whatever. And then, and then you can lead a good life. But what if this is just something in your life that definitely has a gigantic impact on your life? but you are hundred percent just as worthy of love and respect and just as valuable a member of society with it, with this condition. It's not a I way to you how many people have told me that I need to just listen to YouTube affirmations, um, to get out of the sick person mindset. Oh, I wow. can't tell you how many times I've heard. Like that. I enjoyed the reality mindset, which is that I have a legitimate illness. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. That's yeah. I really have no patience for people who claim that you just need to think your way out. Again, it's that desire for control. If it's your fault, that means you can control it and then you can just think your way out. Okay. And I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, sorry. I feel very defensive for you. <laughs> yeah. And and I think sometimes it's okay to be like that and and like be a little defensive and and not defensive. I I don't know. I want to say that I think um because defensive is good so I like I thank you for being defensive but I think for for others maybe defensive is not um the exact thing because then I know when I'm talking to other people about certain things and they start to overstep and how they're telling me to you know deal with my diagnosis they have called me defensive and I know from them it's it's negative you know what I mean like yeah, it, yeah. yeah. and I think that that's okay. And I think that that's a great place to be because it's like, I know what I'm doing for my treatment and I know how I'm going about this. And if you don't agree with it, like, it's okay for me to not have any patience for that. And mm-hmm. I see was, yeah. you know what I mean, um, like there was a moment when I had to like really come to terms with that for myself and, and kind of take ownership of my plan of care and, of how I want to be treated and how I'm going to go about, you know, managing my disease. And like, that is my choice and people can have opinions, but at the end of the day, what I choose is neither right nor wrong. And no one else has a say on that, except for me. Yeah. You're, you're so like young to have already gotten to that. That took me like so many years to get to. Um, but it's still, I'm, I'm guessing a process. I don't mean to be like, you're a hundred percent. Yeah. No, it's it's still a process, but it was like um it was probably the most relieving thing. It has been the most relieving thing for me. Like I like oh my gosh, I was trying for so long to be the perfect patient, 
be the perfect daughter, be the perfect student, be the perfect everything at the same time and make everybody happy with how I was handling everything. Oh, geez, sorry. And I, there's no space for that. No, it's too much pressure to put on yourself and perfect doesn't even exist anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, I was having, I was feeling a lot of pressure, even like coming from my parents about now, don't think you're going to be on that forever or medication is not what's going to heal you. So you need to put your, your sights on this thing or this thing I found on the internet or this other thing I found on the internet. And it's like, that is just as risky as you think that medication is. And, and also you know, I had to decide that for myself. Like I I still haven't found the right medication for me and I'm still experimenting a lot, but that's okay. And whatever thing people find on the internet and think that that's the the thing that's going to magically heal me, I don't have to dive into that. And I can be okay with this journey of trying to find the proper medication with my own medical team. Right. um, right. And then that's, that's okay. Yeah, the anti-medication bias runs so deep and it's really a shame because medications, it's it's almost like if your mom, oh, sorry, that's my dog shaking. If your mom could see all the people that aren't coming into the clinic now, like I have OT and PT friends who will say, my friend Joanne, she's a certified hand therapist. She's like, we don't see anyone with RA hardly anymore. Like, because they're just, she works in a post-surgical clinic. So she used to see people with knuckle surgeries for severe deformities and she's like they're just gone because the medications are working so well for the majority of people you know so um it really is the case like just statistically the medications are going to at the population level you know give people the best chance at the highest quality life and lifespan i mean ra with if uncontrolled it takes seven to ten years off your life you don't want to play around with that with natural methods that historically have not been as powerful as medications. Although long-term you might find a balance, right? It's not an either, or you could do natural method. I mean, I'm an OT that's like what we do lifestyle, right? It's sleep, exercise, nutrition, you know, stress management's a big one. They're all helpful. It's just, you can't, those are not going to take the place of medication for the vast majority. And, and also the thing to add to that too, because of like my financial situation and having to constantly work and having all of that stress on me already and the process of finding and trying different medications, it's like, there's no time that I can, you know, set aside for this medication to not work for six months and I can't do anything. And I have no way for, to care for myself, to pay my rent, to do all of these different things that I have to do for myself. Like, you know, my doctor is like, okay, this medication is not working for you. Let's switch. And I'm like, oh my God, I, because there's a, there's a chance that this is not going to work for me. And I'm going to be stuck in my bed and not being able to do anything. There's no time that I can just look at my calendar and say, oh, that's a good time to do that. You know, right. that's a whole another element. And then there's no, my flare-ups come all the time. There's no time I can pencil in for that. There's no time that's the right time for that to happen. You know, it's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's really a lack of, I think, under, it sounds like there's a lack of understanding of like what the real impact is of these kind of decisions on your life, your actual everyday nitty gritty life that you're trying to lay in, 
you know? I think especially when I don't have that built-in support system to the point where I'm like, okay, I can do this for this long period of time and someone is going to pay for everything for me, um, make my meals for me, like clean up for me, like help me get to the shower, help me get to the bathroom, like these small things. And then the really big things, my mom helps me as much as she can, but still, yeah, it's, it's not sustainable. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a different experience than some of my friends that I'm so glad that they are blessed in the ways that they are but when something happens to them it's like their family member can fly out and be with them and take care of everything so that all they can focus on is healing like I've I don't have that I don't have that built-in insurance and a lot of people don't and so that it's a it's a completely different way of life it's a completely different like journey to go on and experience any illness with that being like the set of circumstances and so it's like the baseline of stress is already. Yeah. Yeah. It's intrinsic, it's intrinsically stressful. And then when you know that stress is, you know, can drive more inflammation and make your symptoms work. And then you get that cycle. Of, now I'm stressed about being stressed. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Stressed about being stressed. I, there was one point I was in so much pain and, and, and it finally, all of the burdens that I was carrying and like the role I was playing in certain relationships that was just like kind of just taking on all of this. I had to stop. I had to cut it off. It, I'm like, when I feel that thing in my body just revving up, it's like, Tyra, stop, go away from it, stop it and leave it alone. Like giving myself the permission to back away from these things and to let them be. And it's like, even though I've played this role in like my family for so long, it's like, it's not serving me. So I have to let it go. Mm. I have to let it go. Or even in friendships, I'm like, it's not serving me. I have to let it go. Or even projects that I think that I need to be doing when it's like, it is hurting me more than it's helping me. Mm-hmm. Let it, let it go. And that has helped me so much because I used to be such a, no matter what, stick it out to the end. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have the luxury anymore. Mm-hmm. No, no. And, you know, I think people listening are probably like, wow, she is so, you know, she's such a unique or interesting story that I haven't heard before because the majority, I do want to acknowledge the majority of like the representation of women, of people with like rheumatoid arthritis online, especially on social media is like, you know, white women. And so you have a totally different perspective than the average quote unquote, if you just look up rheumatoid arthritis, you're going to get. Yeah. What do you see? Yep. Right. Exactly. And so, and so you have taken upon yourself to make a documentary about your life, which is so, I am so excited about this. Like I literally like you, you, again, the algorithm didn't lead me to you because my algorithms probably figured out that I'm a white woman and it's like, totally giving me like a selected slice of what's out there and so um you reach out to me and I immediately was like I want to have you on the podcast like your story is so amazing so anyway tell me about like what is it like to make a documentary like what made you led you to it whatever you want to say about it you have the floor (laughs) okay so I am an actress and a filmmaker and I I make art and, and anything art that is love it um and so I recently graduated from 
um, DePaul University for acting. And so, you know, I'm trying to do my little actor thing. I was signed with an agency and just trying to make my path, but also financially, I was really, 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 really struggling. And I was working around the clock and I was in excruciating pain. And honestly, I was kind of watching my health and my body just crumble. And oh my God, I, I, I got to the point where I really thought I was going to die. And I was, and that's when I started seizing and everything. And, and I would like seize, I was like, my rent is due and I don't have any food and I need to make money. So I need to go to work. And, and so it got to the point where I, I was so, so, so very unwell. And my best friend, Abby, um, she knew about this. And, and like I said, my ex-boyfriend has, had seen me seizing and he didn't, he didn't feel safe leaving. He didn't feel comfortable leaving me. Um, and so we called her to, and she like watched me and she really like kind of took me and forced me and was like, Tyra, I know you don't usually want help, but I'm going to help you. And I'm going to buy a plane ticket for you to go home so you can go to the hospital. Um, and so when all that happened, I came, I finally came back after I kind of recovered a little bit and my best friend, Abby and her boyfriend, Nick, um, they, she started a GoFundMe for me to help me pay for the medical bills that I racked up when I went to the hospital. Um, and her boyfriend was like recording the video for me. And he was like, you know, this is a, this is a story. Like there's a, there's a bigger story here. Like there's, this could be a full documentary. And I was like, I don't have a story. There's nothing interesting here. Like it's just, and then we really started talking about it. And we're like, wow, no, we can, we can make a documentary. Like we can, we can do this. Like he went to school for um, documentary filmmaking and I'm a filmmaker and we can do this. Like we have what it takes to do this. Um, and so the three of us embarked on the journey and I was doing it while, while so, so sick, like, <laughs> and, and I, I thank the two of them for showing me how possible making spaces accessible is and how accessible filmmaking can be and how accessible a process can be when you have it in mind and you focus on doing that. And I directed it and, and, and also um, I learned how to sound mix for it. And we, we were kind of just doing, navigating everything and learning things together. Um, and so we were just trying to get as much footage to kind of piece this story together. And, and it was a whole journey kind of trying to, because I think we would say my pain is invisible. So making this invisible pain visible and showing like, I think a lot of things that people in the chronic pain community will recognize that other people won't recognize, like me, like pulling a hot pack or an ice pack or like rubbing a cream on me. Like, I feel like some people will see a little bit of the bottle and be like, I know exactly what cream that is. Um, and so trying to capture those things, but also because I am an artist and I've had pain for a very long time. I just didn't know what it was. So I've also encountered a lot of other artists that have been taken out of this field because they got an injury that didn't just go away in a week. And so that completely like ruined their career or honestly ruined their body when they ignored those injuries because they didn't have the space because a lot of times we treat artists like they're just expendable and we don't give 
people the proper maintenance tools or even just setting them up for success. And so I wanted to make this documentary to be number one, representation for artists dealing with chronic pain and disability and being in artistic spaces and making artistic spaces accessible and like what that journey even is, but also just boiling it down to what is it like for somebody with chronic pain to exist, especially in like this society that is very, very ableist. What is it like? What are the things that are faced on a day-to-day basis? What are the financial components of it? What are like the social things that one goes through? I mean, I really had to mourn my social life. And even now, there are so many things that I was dreaming of and planning for me to do as a young person that I have not been able to do. And I was kind of trapped in a house since I was 19 up until, honestly, a couple months ago. (laughs) Um, And still, I still am in a way, but trying to figure out those ways to make things accessible for me. Like, it's just like giving myself the freedom to do things in a creative way in order to make it possible for me. And so, yeah, and also the representation of of a Black woman, a Black woman as an artist, and then a Black woman as an artist with chronic pain and chronic illness. Like, what is that story? What is that plight? What goes into that? And also, I've been so blessed to have a really loving community and friends. And like I said, my mom being a physical therapist, like, it takes a village, I think. I think it it, it takes a village. And it takes a village for anybody to do anything, but especially the things that I have had to overcome, I needed that village. And I needed that. I needed people that had the mindset that we can make this work. I've been, yeah, I've confronted so many people that are just like, it would be too expensive for me to accommodate you, or it would be, it would ruin this process for you to have the things that you need when they don't even know what I need. Mm -hmm. It's like, the things that I personally need, I already have because I need them. I just need the space and possibly the time, which is not that much usually. Like what I'm saying is for a play, we would have sometimes five minute, 10 minute breaks. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I was really suffering and I was in a show, it would take me about five minutes to get to the hall down the hallway because of how I had to walk down the hallway or how I had to will myself in my wheelchair down the hallway. So if we could just change our break time to about 15 minutes to actually accommodate me and what I need and probably what some other people need, but they're just not speaking up about it. Mm -hmm. If we can just factor those in, it would be so easy. It's so easy. And And everyone wins too. Everyone wins and everyone wins. And it's like, also art imitates life. And I think a lot of times people take how they are supposed to, you know, operate in society based on media representation. So if we are not showing any representation for a certain community, there, the majority of people have no idea how to interact with this community. They have no idea what to do. They have no idea what they need. But if we are actually incorporating media representations, we are teaching people what to do and how to act and how to make spaces accessible like from the beginning. And so I wanted this documentary to be that, be, be an, a representation to even just be like 
for me, when I would go on social media and I would like even seeing like your post and seeing things you put on social media, I felt less alone. And I felt because whew, when I got diagnosed and when I was in the amount of pain that I am usually in, I got to the place where I was like, there's nothing that I can do. There's no one that wants me. This amount of pain that I am in is not worth I'm living through. It's no longer worth living with everything being out as it is. But then when I started to, you know, be in groups and be in community with people and seeing representation and seeing that I'm not alone in this feeling, I'm not alone in like this symptom, I'm not alone with dealing with these things, it reminded me that I'm okay and I'm not alone and I'm special and I'm worthy. And all of the things that, you know, seeing the mainstream ableist, like, like, you know, representations of what life is supposed to be, that really kind of ripped my joy out of me. It started to feed that back. And I, and I want my documentary to be that for someone, you know, if it's just one person, I think that that's insanely successful. Oh, well, and it's, and I've seen the kind of, um, the five minute like preview that you have of it. And it's so for those listening at the time of this recording in late July, 2023, it's not all, it's in process still, right? But you can the post-production side of it now. Yeah. So you can go to, but the website is my name is tyra.com. Right. And then there's an Instagram, which we're going to put in the show notes too, that you can follow to be kind of on to, to know, is, is there to know when it's fully done I just think it's amazing that you're doing this. I think, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even really learn about representation in media until I took, I went to a very liberal, liberal, I can't say that, liberal arts school in New York. And I took a, uh, I, I majored in psychology and I minored in anthropology. And um, I took a class called uh, language, gender and media. And they had us look at, because I love children's media. And they haven't had us look at this is Travis is gonna like relate. They had us like look at old clips of like children's cartoons from when we were younger and just count how many are male and how many are female. I was like the default person slash character in every single piece of media that I looked at, it was like the Smurfs, you know, 19 men, one woman, Looney Tunes, you know, 10 men, two women. It's like, wow, just from gender representation is so skewed towards men and then when you look at race and disability disability is just completely (laughs) I mean there's maybe one person a token person in a wheelchair very occasionally and for the vast majority of those it's like they didn't let that stop them like that ableist narrative you know exactly and that's what I've been confronted with too just like socially is yeah it's that story of, okay, they were in a wheelchair and then miraculously because of their sheer strength or just like some miracle, magical thing that now they can go off and do these things. It's, it's, it makes the majority of people not know how to deal with someone who has a chronic condition because I I even saw in like my community of, oh, okay, we understand what's going on with you and we can be sad about it. And then in two weeks you should be healed and we don't want to hear about it anymore. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, Oh, why are you still talking about this? <laughs> yeah. When are you going to get 
better. It's so, I actually had this idea of a children's book. Maybe I'll speak it into the universe. And if someone else beats me to it, you know, more power to you. But my idea is like, some owies don't get better. Like <laughs> their whole life, we're still this idea that you get an owie, but it's okay. You go to the doctors, they make it better. No, yeah. they don't always make it better. Sometimes you get sick and then you get a little bit better and then you get a little bit worse and you get a little bit better and you get a little bit worse and up it's up and down the rest of your life. There's like no conclusion to the story. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's like when people see me with my ice packs, which I do like twice a day, they're like, what happened? And then then they see me in a wheelchair one day. And then like, if I'm up and I'm able to walk, they're like, oh, you're so much better. Oh, I know. I've done the same thing too. And I think it's so complex. I've done it to other people too, because it's like, yes, it's not the kind of thing where like, let's say compare it to autism, where it's like, um, like, you know, let's say there used to be the person first language person with autism. Now Mm -hmm. the pendulum has swung where the autistic community prefers to, first of all, have identity first language. Like I am autistic and it's not like some cancer that's like thrust upon me that I would take away. It's how I am. It's who Mm -hmm. I am. And I like it. And I, you need to accommodate me rather than taking this away from me but whereas someone like a physical ailment like rheumatoid arthritis for me it's like yeah if someone gave me a choice to have rheumatoid arthritis or to not have it I would prefer not to have it <laughs> like and I can it is part of my identity because I have it but I could still be the core identity of Cheryl being you know that what I value and who I am could be the same without you know, so it's complex in that way, but I still want to be seen and I see myself as just as worthy, again, worthy of love, worthy of, yeah, a meaningful life, you know. It's like the lessons that RA has taught me and the ways of like, you know, being an artist and being a person and being a friend that I do credit a lot to RA. Wonderful. I love those lessons. But there's another side of RA that is insanely, insanely hard that if I didn't have to deal with it, oh my God, please let me not, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You would have more time to develop. Yeah, I, I actually had someone on the podcast and I don't want to be like, she's wrong and I'm right. But it was just interesting because I said something like, I said that actually, I always, I often repeat myself on this podcast. So I said something pretty much similar to what I just said. And, and I was like, you know, my life, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Like my life would be easier if I didn't have our And she's like, no, but it wouldn't like, you'd still like, you're, you know, no, it would like, I'm if like, you held everything else equal. Yeah. It's okay. This to admit that like, this is a barrier to my function. Like yes. it is. And so we can live with it and I can still do my best to, you know, live an empowered existence, but I don't want to pretend that my life would be just, if I had everything else was the same, I didn't have RA, I would have a lot of mental space and time freed up to do other stuff. I'm like the mental capacity that I have is so reduced um, and, and even so reduced from what it used to be and the amount of time that I can put into my art, the amount of time that it takes away from every single thing, every single day that I have to do. It's like, it's just another element on top of being able to get ready or, or even have to have a conversation with somebody. It's this whole thing that adds so much, so much that if it was gone, it would be so breezy. But I mean, there would be something else, you know? There would I mean? still be, yeah. It's all relative. There's the hedonic treadmill where like we would, 
but you know, you do appreciate your health more once you have had something like this. You really, yeah. Like I walked, um, I walked down this path, um, and I will, and it didn't hurt. And I was able to like sit and then like walk back. And I remember like, I, I started crying a little bit because I'm like, there was a time when I was just begging and pleading for another chance to be able to like take a walk outside. Mm-hmm. And it's like now I'm taking this walk right now and it's so special. And, and just like insecurities that I have in my body and in the way my body has changed since, you know, being in pain Mm -hmm. and just like kind of being more thankful and grateful to my body for withstanding all of that and still being able to carry me here and carry me back. Like it's shifted into a new level of gratitude for just like my limbs, you know? Yeah, totally. And I mean, yeah, that's a whole other like kind of seeing your body as like the enemy, which is totally something that a lot of people do, you know, initially it's a normal part of the process, but then learning how to say, yeah, my body's not functioning as well as I wish it was, but I still appreciate it. And yeah, have self-compassion. But um, unfortunately, I do have to start wrapping it up really sadly, but is there anything else that you wanted to say about any of these topics before we go to the rapid fire questions? Hmm. I talk for 10 hours. So I'm going to do part two. I think um, just one, one thing would be something that I've adopted lately is because I saw this a lot in, in like different, like, like self-help ways of reparenting oneself. And I kind of took that to be a part of like my chronic pain management of like, parenting parts of my body and like parenting my pain and kind of like giving that love and reassurance and and sometimes like structure that I would want a parent to give to me like for love and other things but giving those things to like my body and like being able to just love on him like my my knees when they flare up and offering them what they need and being more mindful in that way and not being harsh on my body, but being more loving and kind of like, I'm taking care of my body and I am like, it's my baby and I can love it and I can give it what it needs and all of it is okay. That's, I think transformed a lot for me instead of being like more shameful and harsh and mean and mad at myself, but being more like compassionate. I love that. I love that. Reparenting your relationship to your body. I've never thought of it that way, but it's a really beautiful, it's a really beautiful, compassionate stance, which I hope, I know is going to resonate with a lot of people. Um, So for rapid fire questions, each one of these again could be actually pretty long, but um, do you have any general like best advice for, or words of wisdom that you would want to share with somebody who is newly diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis? It's a hard one, right? (laughs) I think parsing out the things that you've adopted, if that's like a way of thinking, a way of being in relationship and being okay if like those things don't serve you anymore. So being compassionate with yourself about letting certain things go, even if that's been the way you have asserted yourself in life, your whole life, like it's okay to let it go. That's, that's super helpful. 
And do you have a favorite arthritis gadget or tool in your toolbox? I have so many. It's ridiculous. I have like three drawers dedicated. Oh. Um, it's hard to choose. I don't even know how I would answer that, honestly. I think my roller. I fall asleep in bed with it every day. Um, <laughs> like a foam, a long foam roller. foam roller. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a soft one. Then I have a hard one. And I even have like this little doohickey right here. Oh, wow. My tennis ball, like when I say I have a whole thing, but my foam roller. Love it. love it. That's great. And then I just love talking about pop culture. So do you have a favorite like movie or show or book that you've been consuming recently? <laughs> oh my gosh. I love Real Housewives. Oh um, yes. Game of Thrones. Um, I'm rewatching it right now. And Harry Potter. I used to, Harry Potter, I used to watch it every night before I went to bed. <laughs> I love it. My son's really into it right now too. And I've been reading them to him, which is fun. He knows how to read, but it's like a, you know, bonding activity. And then do you have a favorite like mantra or inspirational saying when things are hard? Ooh, mantra. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, that's okay. I do have one that's also on my Instagram. Um, and it's like, what is it? The reward for conformity is that everyone likes you except for yourself. And I think that kind of relates to some of the stuff we've said, said with even like treatment and trying to conform to certain things when it just is not what you need. Yeah. <laughs> Don't reward people, like reward yourself. <laughs> love that. I love that. And then last one, what does it mean for you to live a good life and thrive with chronic illness? It means knowing what my body needs and having the means to provide those things. And if not my first option to provide for myself, having a way to kind of adjust and find a different way to give my body what it needs is I honestly feel that I I feel happy and I feel whole if I have that, if I have the knowledge to treat myself and then I have the means to provide that for myself, I feel whole. And then a lot of love, a lot of hugs, a lot of just good people and laugh, laughing. (laughs) Oh, laughter. Absolutely. Well, this has been so great. Thank you so much. And do you want to just share the link, uh, social media, where would you want people to follow you? I would love for anyone to just check out my Instagram for my documentary, which is my name is Tyra doc on Instagram. And then our website is my name is Tyra.com. But on our Instagram, we'll just continuously update everything. And then my personal Instagram is at three underscores VXCC and my full name is Tyra Grove. Okay. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to be following, well, I'm already following you, but I'm going to be making sure to like share, you know, um, whatever you share about, you know, where the documentary is. And if you like go to like a film festival or something, that'd be so cool. I'm just really excited for you. And I think this is such an important thing for the like rheumatoid arthritis community at large, you know, to have that artistic, representation and so I just applaud you I know it's so much work I mean it takes me a long time to make a 45 second TikTok so I can't imagine a full documentary is a lot of work 
So <laughs> I know you had an Indiegogo page, but that's not up anymore. Is there any way people can, if they want to support it, is there a different page? Yes, absolutely. Um, so there's a link tree. I have a link tree with all the links oh. on it. And I can also like, you can find it on our website and you can find it on our, my, my Instagram page. And you could always Venmo me or cash at me. And if you don't feel comfortable with doing that, you can personally message me um, and we can, you know, talk about it and, and say what the best way to send something is, which could be like a Zelle or, you know, whatever, um, or even sending a donation to a PO box. I can list that as well. Okay. Oh, that would be perfect. Oh, this is so great. Thank, thank you again. I will definitely be watching, tuning in. Um, and I appreciate, I know it's so is a lot of, um, it's emotional labor to go back and share these memories. So thank you for taking the time to do that for the people out there who are listening. Um, so thank you again, and hopefully we'll follow up soon. Bye-bye. For- thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.